You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, happy Easter. It is so good to be together with you this morning. Easter is meant to be a party. It's the greatest celebration of the year. And if you want to get a little insight into the meaning of this celebration, you might look into the writings of a man who lived 700 years before Jesus walked the face of this earth, a man named Isaiah. Isaiah understood somehow that there would be a celebration on the third day that would point to the celebration on the last day, and that even in his own day, the preparations were being made. I would invite you to look at the bulletin that you received when you came in. Our text has been printed there for you. It's Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 10a. I'm going to read this for us, and when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Isaiah is writing about something the Lord would do someday on a mountain, and that mountain, a small mountain in uh, the Middle East on which Jerusalem uh, was built in Isaiah's day. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It'll be said on that day, whoa, this is our God. We've waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad. And rejoice in his salvation, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. I wonder if you caught this story about a week and a half ago. A man in Burien found out about a party. The man's name was Joey DiGiulio, and the party was a bachelor uh, party that was going to be happening in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He received this email. He was on a thread, and he looked at the other addresses. There were like 40 or 50 other addresses. They were all guys. And the party was a, a bachelor party. They were all planning a bachelor party back and forth. And uh, the interesting thing is Joey didn't know anybody on the thread, and he didn't know the groom. But they, he liked the way they talked with one another. He appreciated the jokes and the banter. So he just sort of surreptitiously stayed in the conversation on the edge and continued to read as they interacted with one another. He would read for, I don't know, a couple months. And then uh, finally he had, felt he had to come clean because the groom's brother asked for a firm head count for the bachelor party. And so at this point, Joey feels like, well, I've, I've actually got to admit that I'm not who they think I am. So he um, says, he hits reply to all, and he types, looks like someone mistyped an address. I have no idea who you guys are. Um, Have a great party. Good luck to the groom. I'm out. There was a day in my life 
When, if I walked into this Easter celebration that we're having here in this moment, I would have felt like I was at somebody else's party. I would have looked around at you all and I would see a group of people who look just great. They know when to stand up and they know when to sit down. It wouldn't be so much that I didn't know the words to the songs that you were singing. It's that you sing in public. I mean, is that weird? Where else do we do that? I would say to myself, I don't think this was my crowd. You know, I don't know anybody. I'm not sure this is my party. But more than that, I have to be honest with you, uh, even today, on this day, and you got to understand, I'm a paid Christian, right? I'm the pastor here, by the way. And I got to say, there are days when I come into worship not sure that I can bring my whole life into the room, right? Because I'm aware that in the background of my life, there is this cauldron of bubbling chaos that belches forth from time to time. And I don't know if all of my life really quite fits into what we're doing here. I wonder if I can afford to bring my financial life or my family life or my relationship life or my work life or my recreation life. Even though I'm here physically, I might really be looking around the room and hearing all this talk of Jesus dying on the cross and then he rose from the dead and I might be tempted to say, good for him. You know, he's back. He's, he's alive again. But what does it have to do with me? This is not my party. Good luck to the groom. Well, I might be tempted to do that, but I wouldn't be paying attention to what God has for us in this passage. I want you to look again at that and see if the one word that Isaiah repeats over and over and over again, it's a very small word. He uses it five times in the text. It's the word all. There it is in verse 6, all peoples. Verse 7, all peoples. Verse 7, all nations. Verse 8, all faces. Verse 8, all the earth. Again and again and again, he says, this is a celebration that's coming from this mountain for all, 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 all. And I guess as I read that, I have to think, maybe it implicates me. Maybe I'm part of this as well. Well, you say, well, Isaiah certainly doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I've done. He doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know the stuff that I've gotten into. He doesn't know the stuff that, frankly, I can't seem to get out of. And that's true. Isaiah doesn't know you and he doesn't know me. But he doesn't have to know us. All he has to know is the host of the party. He has to know God. Verse 6 tells us who's responsible for this celebration. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people. Now that phrase, Lord of hosts, is an ancient way of referring to God. And it has some military overtones. I would translate it, the commander of heaven. The commander of heaven. And I guess by the time you get to be the commander of heaven, you get to say who's in and who's out. And he says all. I make this feast for all people. This is a celebration today for everybody, for all of us. This language of the commander of heaven makes us a little bit nervous. And it threw people off in Jesus' day as well. You, You notice that they didn't quite recognize who had sent Jesus in his day. Because they were looking for this one who had come to... Uh, represent the command center of eternity on earth. And they expect he would come with a sword and he would use that sword on all the bad people and, and sort of wipe the scourge off the face of the earth. And he would try to find the remaining two or three good people that were left, you know, and pull them in and say, these are the righteous ones. And trouble is Jesus didn't do that, did he? No, he didn't come with a fight. He came with a feast. He came with a party. I love this about Jesus. Wherever he went, there was a party. 
everywhere. And the problem with that party in particular for people in his day was that he kept partying with the wrong people. Right? He'd party with tax collectors, the Roman sympathizers. He'd, he'd party with prostitutes. He'd party with foreigners. He'd party with lepers, the, the physically disabled. He'd party with the poor. Now, if you want to know what this is like, what this felt like to them in that culture, you'd have to translate it this way, I think, and this is going to make you uncomfortable. Jesus partied with, we would say, terrorists, child abusers, Wall Street tycoons, pornographers, and Ebola patients. Right? Yeah, this is radical. And yet, Jesus understood the meaning of this one little word that Isaiah uses, all. This is for all peoples. A celebration. What I'm saying is, we're overhearing about a great feast through the ears of Isaiah. Now, like I said, Joey DiGiulio from Burien got an email it was a strange email from Philadelphia about a bachelor party. And he didn't delete it. He learned that it wasn't his party, at least he felt that way. And yet he listened in from the periphery. He paid attention from a distance until it seemed like he could no longer, in good faith, uh, not acknowledge the mistake, as he thought it. So he came clean and he acknowledged, I don't think I'm the right guy. For this party. I don't know any of you. And, and uh, there was some laughter in the email thread about this. Everybody thought this was pretty funny and they started making jokes about it, forgetting that Joey's still on the thread and, and he's reading all the jokes that they're now making uh, about him. And then someone said, actually the groom said, hey, what if we invite Joey to the bachelor party? And uh, yeah, someone said, let's all fork up an extra $20 and get Joey a plane ticket to Philly. So the groom writes, Joe, I'm overnighting you a wedding invite. You show up at the bachelor party and I'll make you the best man. What? This is a true story. This just happened. Uh, you, you go, who are these people? Who, what kind of a party is this? It's just startling. And I, and, but I want to suggest that that's the question we want to ask this morning. If we'd properly be startled by this passage in Isaiah. What kind of a festival is this? What sort of celebration is it that Isaiah has been given to picture here? And by way of a brief answer, I want to reflect on three images that Isaiah gives us. Because it's going to help us understand why we're here today and what Easter means to us. Three images, the shroud, the face, and the accusation. First, the shroud. We find this in verse 7. We read, and he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread. I think this image, the shroud, is an image of life. Because we're led to picture some kind of a sheet that's draped over a lifeless body. Uh, someone has died. And yet, here Isaiah says, at this feast, what's being celebrated is that this Lord has swallowed up death forever, taken this shroud away. So this is, shroud is an image of life. And then the next image here, uh, is the image of a face in verse 8, the first half. He says, the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. I think this image of a face is an image of love. Because the hardest part when somebody has died is that the relationship is broken. Isn't that the hardest? That's where the grief comes. Because we love that person and now our hearts are broken. We can't be with them anymore. And yet, here's this image of the commander of heaven like a tender mother bending over a toddler and wiping 
the tears from beneath her eyes. And not just one, but face after face until there is not a face left in all of creation with a single tear. This is an image of love. And then the third and final image here is uh, an accusation. Why do I say that? Well, look at 8b, uh, the second half there. He says, the di- disgrace of his people he will take away. The disgrace. Now, the word disgrace in Hebrew could be translated a taunt or a slander. It's an accusation. It's something, whether true or not, that someone says. It's a claim against you. And this disgrace will be taken away. Of course, when somebody dies, there's oftentimes a question of, of culpability. We feel survivor guilt. Did someone kill this? How did they die? Did someone kill them? Or did someone not care for them? Who's responsible for this? And we all feel uh, that we have accusations against us. Israel will because they'll give up their God and end up in, in exile. And uh, whether they're justified or not, we're all the subject of accusation. Frankly, many of us carry these accusations around even in our own hearts. And yet... On this day, on this grand feast, all of the accusations will be removed from heaven. They'll all be vacated of any validity because of something that happens on this mountain. You see, this is radical grace. This is a symbol of honor. This is a celebration, therefore, of life and love and honor because of what God will do someday. In one sense, we'd say, then, this is like all of our bigger parties— you think about why we have parties in our culture. Why, why do we, what do we celebrate? Well, we have birthday parties and we celebrate life. And we have anniversary parties and we celebrate love. And we have retirement parties and we celebrate honor. We say, look at everything you've done over your career. And we honor you for that. It's a party like all parties. But it's also a party like no party. Because, it's, because the cause of this is that one day somehow God will swallow up death forever. And at that point... There are no more shortened lives. There are no more broken hearts. And there are no more lost honors. On this day, Isaiah writes of nothing but the resurrection of the crucified Son of God. He will swallow up death forever. He's writing about Easter. It's remarkable to me just how much Isaiah seems to know about Jesus. Keep in mind, he lived... Seven centuries before Jesus was even born. And yet, image after image is spot on to who Jesus would be. For example, in Isaiah 54, verse 5, we're told that Jesus will be a bridegroom to all people. A groom. We're also told that this servant who would come would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7, 14. He would also live in Galilee. Isaiah 9, 2. He would also bring good news to the oppressed and bind up the brokenhearted, Isaiah 61, verse 1. He would be despised and rejected, Isaiah 53, 9. And most importantly, he would bear the punishment for our sin. This is where the honor comes from. Notice, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his bruises, we are healed. This great heavenly bridegroom offers us an invitation. This is the groom of heaven saying for us, I have paid the price. I have sent the ticket. I want you to come. There will be no celebration where I've experienced true joy without you at that celebration. So he invites us. 
just like Joey was invited. But the great thing about Joey DiGiulio is this. He actually went to the party. He did. Can you believe it? I don't think I would have gone. But he said, well, you know, you'll only live once. Let's give this a try. So uh, he didn't just listen in. He didn't just smile when an invitation was expressed to his doorstep. No, he actually went to the party. He went to SeaTac. He got on an airplane. He flew across the country, got to Philadelphia, got off the plane. And um, so here's the problem, right? He's, he's trying to meet somebody that he's never met. You know how this works, right? You, you, you go through security and out into the baggage area, and what do you see? Right. It's, it's the sign. And so there he sees you know, a bunch of people with signs, and there's one sign that says, Joey DiGiulio. And behind that sign, you know who it was? It was the groom. He said, finally, to put a live face to the name. My friends, this is what Easter makes possible for you. Finally, to put a live face to the name Jesus. One day, you will have an opportunity to stand before him, and you will see him waiting for you expectantly. The one who invited you will be there with a joyful smile on his face, rejoicing that you've come with your name, with your name. Isaiah would say that our names are inscribed on the hands of our God, and there he would be. You know, I think the biggest mistake when we think about life after death is to think about it's something that would be helpful someday. You know what I'm saying? We think, well, yeah, when I die, that's going to be useful to me, and I hope that won't be for another 40 years or so, so I hope that'll be useful to me someday. But when we say that, when we reduce Jesus to just a ticket to eternity, we radically reduce all of, uh, all of who he really is, the abundance of his life gets uh, radically uh, shrunk down. Jesus doesn't just ask us to give him our afterlives. Jesus asks us to give him our lives. See, he says, I want you to come to me, all of you, and bring all of you when you come. But we do have to come. We do have to do what Joey did. You see, faith is not passive. It's very, very active. The invitation is offered us on Easter have eternal life, to join this great feast and celebration. But we have to respond to the invitation. If Joey had just allowed that plane ticket to sit on his doorstep, this party would have been of no benefit whatsoever to him. And so likewise, you and I need to respond this Easter Sunday to come to him in faith, to recognize him as my Savior. You know, in order to be able to recognize him on the last day, We need to know him on this day. Do you see that? That there's this moment of recognition. Verse 9, here's at the end of the passage. It will be said on that day, lo, this is our God. We waited for him so that he might save us. Moment of recognition. If you want to recognize your Savior at the end, you need to know him in the middle. And he says, well, then come to me. This is what brings me. This is what brings me to Easter Sunday this morning to worship him with you. This is what brings me to church I don't know where else to go uh, with my life. I don't know where else I can go where I can find my sins are completely forgiven. My disgrace is, you know, the thing that I hide from you. I don't have to hide it from Jesus because he's going to take it away. He has taken it away from all the earth. I don't know where else to go with my fears about the shortness of life and, and health and lost loved ones other than to Jesus who offers eternal life. 
I don't know where else to go but to, to him. See, Jesus doesn't invite us to a, a service where we learn how to stand up and sit down. He's not asking you this morning to join a church or to change your religion. He's inviting you into a relationship with the one who died for you and who lives for you, who has paid the price for you, and now who is yearning for you to come to know him, the living Savior, to recognize him in your life. Well, what a great day it would be to give your life to Jesus Christ. Easter Sunday, 2015. Can't think of a better day. Uh, this is your day. I want to invite you uh, to open yourself up in a fresh way to faith in Jesus Christ. What he did for you on the third day, he does for you this day, so that you can rejoice from now until the last day. In a moment, I'll close with a prayer. And if you'd like to receive Jesus' invitation, it's really simple. Just take the words of my prayer and say them silently to him in your heart as I do so. The only thing I would ask of you is that you would share that with someone. You would tell someone, I said yes to Jesus today, and now I have eternal life. Just tell someone. That's good confirmation for you, and you might just find you encourage somebody else. But before I offer that prayer, I want to um, read to you some more words of our Lord through the prophet Isaiah from chapter 55. It's an invitation again to come. The Lord says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Come to me so that you may live. You see, Jesus is the feast. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, to use the imagery of this text, we'd have to confess that we've been eating a lot of junk food. Thank you for this invitation to the greatest of all celebrations, to come to you and have the bread of life and to drink the cup of salvation. Thank you that you came to earth to rescue us from sin and death. In your resurrection, you have broken the power and overcome the realities of shortened lives, broken hearts, and lost honor. And today, today, King Jesus, Bridegroom of Heaven, I have decided to come to you. I give all that I know of me to all that I know of you. I accept your invitation. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising for me. Thank you for swallowing up my death forever. Thank you for the gift of eternal life on the last day. Thank you for the gift of abundant life in this day. Grant that I might walk faithfully with you all the days of my life so that when the way is tough, I will bring my tears to you. And so that when the way is smooth, I will be glad and rejoice in my salvation. Amen. Our experience has been that when we get close to Jesus Christ, every one of us finds a story of hope in our lives, and we love to share that story with one another. And this fall, during our elder retreat, 
uh, we were doing just that, and we heard um, from one of our elders, Nathan Kyes, who's currently ser- serving on the leadership team of this church. We call it the session. Uh, and he shared a very a vulnerable story and a meaningful story of Jesus' grace at, life, at work in his life. And it gave us all hope. So I asked Nathan if he'd share a little bit of his story with us this morning, this Easter Sunday. Uh, Nathan, in uh, 1999, you were on your way to work at Microsoft, and your life took a turn, and you have never been the same since. Tell us what happened. Yeah. So I was um, on my way to catch a bus, and I crossed the street, and I was hit by a commercial truck. And I sustained a traumatic brain injury. Uh, And uh, although it seemed that I had made a full recovery, over the months I began to experience uh, depression, and I was eventually diagnosed with uh, a severe case of major depressive disorder. And uh, over the years, I've tried many different combinations of antidepressants and other uh, treatment options, but I'm one of those rare cases where none of that is effective. And uh, depression is a horrible disease, and many of us are afflicted with it in different ways. It's very personal. What what's, was your experience, or is your experience, of depression? Yeah, I guess my uh, living with depression for me uh, is like uh, living in the land of Mordor. Mordor. From uh, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings books. Mm. Uh, it's uh, this uh, very desolate land. Uh, it's uh, bleak, volcanic, nothing grows there. And so when I'm uh, in a conversation with someone, it's as though I'm on a video conference call with them. And uh, I can see behind them in the background the green of the shire, you know, the, the meadows and trees. Uh, uh, but when our conversation is over and we sign off, I'm still in Mordor. Wow. So right now, as I'm talking to you, you're experiencing Mordor. I'm in the shire. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> okay. Do you want to switch places? <laughs> let's, let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, didn't work? Didn't work. Oh, I'm so... Okay, well, anyway. <laughs> well, I'm relieved. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, this sounds really, really hard. Tell us uh, uh, how you cope with depression. Uh, yeah, so um, I think uh, coping over the long term, uh, I can really struggle with doubts. Uh, even doubting uh, what it is we're celebrating this morning, you know, our, our uh, moods and feelings are intended to inform and confirm what we experience, but my moods and feelings don't do that. Mm. So to compensate, I've kind of become like Spock, and I, I look at what is logical, and for me, the logic uh, of, of the reality of the resurrection is confirmed in the utter transformation of the disciples. If you think about it, uh, the risen Jesus appeared only to unbelievers. Nobody believed that he would rise from the dead. Hmm, True. And so uh, in light of that, there has got to be a reasonable explanation uh, for how the disciples went from cowering in the darkness to boldly proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, even though it meant losing their own lives. And... In the face of all possibilities, the only one that really survives rigorous scrutiny is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. What we're celebrating this morning isn't just something that helps us make sense of our world 
and get through the day. It's real. Mm. Yeah, it's. Um, uh, I can bet my life on it, and I have. So you mentioned getting through the day. Let's talk a little bit about that. How does this risen Jesus get you through the day? With yeah, I think as uh, as far as coping in the near term, um, I'll briefly mention three things. Um, first, my wife Ray, she is very supportive, uh, as are our three kids, uh, Daniel, Zachary, and Hannah. Uh, but it's very difficult for them. It's very difficult, and I am so grateful to them for uh, hanging in there with me. Uh, Second, I'm very involved here at church, uh, and it took a while for me to reach that point, uh, but doing that really protects me from uh, isolating myself. Mm. And then probably the most important uh, is that God meets me uh, in my need uh, through the guidance of a very good therapist for whom I'm very uh, grateful. A shout out to Sarah. Uh, you know, uh, a good therapist, among other things, uh, helps you very efficiently um, identify issues and then build habits of the mind and heart uh, that can really uh, help improve the quality of your life dramatically. And so Sarah has been helping me uh, learn how to live in the moment by setting aside the judging, evaluating self that uh, my injury has uh, bent so chronically to negativity, uh, and instead to uh, engage the, the observing self. And I have different ways of doing that. So it may come in uh, focusing upon the beauty of a leaf, of uh, the subtlety of its color, of its texture, its, its shape, and not just its shape, but the shapes of the negative space around it. I mean, this kind of simple beauty is, it's all around us, the beauty of the Lord. Uh, and so I'll become very uh, intentional with my observing. Uh, I become very aware, and I'm aware that I'm aware, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, and somewhere in the midst of all that, uh, at a certain point, I cross the threshold where I realize that I am in the presence of God. And I think that's what David uh, meant when uh, he says in Psalm uh, 27.4, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life uh, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You know, David spent way more time outside of Jerusalem than in, much less hanging out at the tabernacle. The temple hadn't even been built yet. Uh, uh, but wherever he was, when he beheld the beauty of the Lord, uh, he was transported. And five or ten minutes in that presence can uh, uh, give you an expanse of rest to your weary spirit that can feel like an hour. And so when I do that, uh, even though I'm always in Mordor, it's as though I have slipped onto my finger the one ring. <laughs> the ring of power. <laughs> and I find myself in the presence of the Lord of the Rings himself, mm. although that Lord isn't Sauron, uh, Tolkien's protagonist, uh, that great eye lidless wreathed in flame. Uh, in my Mordor, the Lord of the Rings is Jesus. Uh, beautiful, humble, powerful, holy, 
resurrected Jesus, and the Temple Mount trembles. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Wow, he quotes Tolkien and the Bible. Would you join me in giving thanks to Nathan for sharing his story with us today? Nathan, thank you very much. God bless you. Thank you. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.